0: chapter 10 of the rose garden husband this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org recording by mary herndon bell the rose garden husband by margaret withimer chapter 10 Allan harrington Lay in his old attitude on his couch in the darkened day room, his tired, clear cut face a little thrown back, eyes half closed. He was not thinking of anything or any one especially, merely wrapped in a web of the dragging, empty, gray half thoughts of weariness in general that had hung about him so many years. Wallace was not there wallace had been with him much less lately and he had scarcely seen phyllis for a fortnight or for the matter of that the dog or any one at all something was going on he supposed but he scarcely troubled himself to wonder what the girl was doubtless making herself boudoirs or something of the sort in a new part of the house he closed his eyes entirely there in the dusky room and let the web of dreary grey formless thought wrap him again phyllis's gay sweetly carrying voice rang from outside the door the three-thirty then wallace and i feel as if i were going to steal Charlie ross well on the last word she broke off and pushed the sitting-room door softly open and slid in she walked in a pussy-cat fashion, which would have suggested to anyone watching her a dark burden on her conscience. She crossed straight to the couch, looked round for the chair that should have been by it but wasn't, and sat absently down on the floor. She liked floors. Allan, she said. No answer. Allan Harrington?' Still none." Allen was half-asleep, or what did instead, in one of his abstracted moods. "'Allen Harrington!' This time she reached up and pulled at his heavy silk sleeve as she spoke. "'Yes,' said Alan courteously, as if from an infinite distance. "'Would you mind?' asked Phyllis guilelessly. "'If Wallace, we—' moved you a little. I can tell you all about everything, unless you'd rather not have the full details of the plan. Anything, said Alan wearily, from the depths of his grey cloud. Only don't bother me about it. Phyllis jumped to her feet, a whirl of gay blue skirts and cheerfully tossing blue feathers. Good-bye, dear crusader she said with a catch in her voice that might have been either a laugh or a sob the next time you see me you'll probably hate me wallace wallace appeared like the slave of the lamp it's all right wallace she said and ran wallace proceeded thereupon to wheel his master's couch into the bedroom if you're going to be moved "'You'd better be dressed a little heavier, sir,' he said, "'with the same amiable guilelessness, "'if the victim had but noticed it, "'which Phyllis had used from her seat on the floor not long before.' "'Very well,' said Allan resignedly from his cloud, "'and Wallace proceeded to suit the action to the word.' Alan let him go on in unnoticing silence "'till it came to that totally unfamiliar thing these seven years,' a stand-up collar, a shiningly new linen collar of the newest cut, a beautiful golden-brown knit tie, a grey suit. "'What on earth?' inquired Alan, awakening from his lethargy. "'I don't need a collar and tie to keep me from getting cold on a journey across the house.' "'And where did you get those clothes? They look new.' Wallace laid his now fully dressed master back to a reclining position he had been propped up and tucked a handkerchief into the appropriate pocket as he replied granton moxley sir where you always deal and he wheeled the couch back to the day room over to its very door it did not occur to allen as he was being carried downstairs by wallace and arthur another of the servants that anything more than a change of rooms was intended, nor, as he was carried out at its door to a long-closed carriage, that it was anything worse than his new keeper's mistaken idea that drives would be good for him. He was a little irritable at the length and shut-upness of the drive, though, as his cot had been swung deftly from the ceiling of the carriage, he was not jarred but when wallace and arthur carried the light pallet on which he lay swiftly up a plank walk laid to the door of a private car why then it began to occur to allan harrington that something was happening and which rather surprised himself he did not lift a supercilious eyebrow and say in a soft apathetic voice very well instead he turned his head towards the devoted wallace who had helped two conductors swing the cot from the ceiling and was now waiting for the storm to break and what he said to wallace was this what the deuce does this tomfoolery mean as he spoke he felt the accumulated capacity for temper of the last seven years surging up toward wallace and arthur and phyllis and the carriage horses and everything else down to the two conductors Wallace seemed rather relieved than otherwise. "'Waiting for a storm to break is rather wearing. "'Well, sir, Mrs. Harrington, she thought, sir, that— "'That a little move would do you good. "'And you didn't want to be bothered, sir.' "'Bothered?' shouted Alan, not at all like a bored and dying invalid. "'I should think I did when a change in my whole way of life is made.' who gave you or mrs harrington permission for this outrageous performance its sheer brutal insulting idiocy nobody sir yes sir replied wallace meekly would you care for a drink sir or anything no thundered allan or a fan ventured wallace APPROACHING NEAR WITH THAT ARTICLE AND LAYING IT ON THE COVER-LID. ALLEN'S HAND SNATCHED THE FAN ANGRILY, AND BEFORE HE THOUGHT, HE HAD HURLED IT AT WALLACE. WEAKLY, IT IS TRUE, FOR IT LIGHTED INGLORIOUSLY ABOUT FIVE FEET AWAY. BUT HE HAD THROWN IT, WITH A MOVEMENT THAT MUST HAVE PUT TO USE THE MUSCLES OF THE LONG-DISUSED UPPER ARM. "'Wallace sat suddenly down and caught his breath. "'Mr. Allen,' he said, "'do you know what you did then? "'You threw, and you haven't been able to use "'more than your forearm before. "'Oh, Mr. Allen, you're getting better.' "'Allen himself lay in astonishment at his feet "'and forgot to be angry for a moment. "'I certainly did,' he said and the way you lost your temper went on Wallace enthusiastically oh mr allan it was beautiful you haven't been more than to say snarly since the accident it was so like the way you used to throw hair-brushes but at the mention of his lost temper allan remembered to lose it still further his old capacity for storming a healthy lad's healthy young hot-temperedness had been weakened by long disuse. But he did fairly well. Secretly it was a pleasure to him to find that he was alive enough to care what happened. Enough for anger. He demanded presently where he was going. "'Not more than two hours' ride, sir,' I heard Mr. de Gunther mention, answered Wallace at once. "'A little place called Walraven. Quite country, sir, I believe.' So, the de Gunthers are in on it too, said Allen. What the dickens has this girl done to them to hypnotize them so But I've heard say it's a very pretty place, sir was all Wallace vouchsafed to this. The de Gunthers were not the only people Phyllis had hypnotized. He gave Allen other details as they went on, however, his clothes and personal belongings were coming on immediately. There were two suitcases, perhaps he had noticed, in the car with them. The young madam was planning to stay all the summer, he believed. Mrs. Clancy had been left behind to look after the other servants, and he understood that she had seen to the engagement of a fresh staff of servants for the country. And Alan, still awakened by his fit of temper and fresh from the monotony of his seven years' seclusion, found all the things Wallace could tell him, very interesting. Phyllis's rose garden house had, among other virtues, the charm of being near the little station, a new little mission station which had apparently been called Walraven by some poetic young real estate agency, for the surrounding countryside looked countrified enough to be a Grays Corners or Smith's Crossing or some other such placid old country name. There were more trees to be seen in Allan's quick passage from the train to the long old carry-all, whose seats had been removed to make room for his cot, than he had remembered existed. There were sleepy birds to be heard, too, talking about how near sunset and their bedtime had come, and a little brook splashed somewhere out of sight. Altogether, spring was to be seen and heard and felt winningly insistent. Allen forgave Wallace, not to speak of Phyllis and the conductors to a certain degree. He ordered the flapping black oilcloth curtain in front, rolled up so he could see out, and secretly enjoyed the drive, unforeseen, though, it had been. His spine never said a word. Perhaps it, too, enjoyed having a change from a couch in a dark city room. They saw no one in their passage through the long, low, old house. Phyllis evidently had learned that Allen didn't like his carryings about done before people. Wallace seemed to be acting under a series of detailed orders. He and Arthur carried their master to a long, well-lighted room at the end of the house, and deftly transferred him to a couch much more convenient, being newer than the old one. On this he was wheeled to his adjoining bedroom, and when Wallace had made him comfortable there, he left him mysteriously for a while. It was growing dark by now, and the lights were on. They were rose-shaded, Alan noticed, as the others had been at home. Allan watched the details of his room, with that vivid interest in little changes which only invalids can know there was an old-fashioned landscape story paper on the walls with very little repeat over it but not where they interfered with tracing out the adventures of the paper people were a good many pictures quite incongruous for they were of the remington type men like but pleasant to see nevertheless the furniture was chintz-covered and gay. There was not one thing in the room to remind a man that he was an invalid. It occurred to Allen that Phyllis must have put a great deal of deliberate work on the place. He lay contentedly watching the great fire, and trying to trace out the story of the paper for at least a half hour. He found himself at length, much to his own surprise, thinking... "'with a certain longing of his dinner tray. "'He was thinking of it more and more interestedly "'by the time Wallace, trayless, came back. "'Mr. and Mrs. de Gunther and the young madam "'are waiting for you in the living room,' he announced. "'They would be glad if you would have supper with them.' "'Very well,' said Allan amiably, "'still much to his own surprise. "'The truth was "'He was still enough awake and interested "'to want to go on having things happen. "'The room Wallace wheeled him back into "'was a long, low one, wainscotted and bare-floored. "'It was furnished with the best imitation Chippendale "'to be obtained in a hurry. "'But over and above there were cushioned chairs "'and couches enough for solid comfort. "'There were more cheerful pictures,' The Maxfield Parishes Phyllis had wanted over the green papered walls. There was a fire here also. The room had no more period than a girl's sentence, but there was a bright air of welcomeness and informality that was winning. An old fashioned half table against the wall was covered with a great many picnicky things to eat. Another table had more things mostly to eat with on it and there were the de Gunthers and Phyllis. On the whole, it felt very like a welcome home. Phyllis, in a satiny, rose-coloured gown he had never seen before, came over to his couch to meet him. She looked very apprehensive and young and wistful for the role of bold, bad hypnotist. She bent towards him with her hand out, seemed about to speak, then backed, flushed, and acted if something had frightened her badly. "'Is she as afraid of me as all that?' thought Allan. Wallace must have given her a lurid account of how he had behaved. His quick impulse was to reassure her. "'Well, Phyllis, my dear, you certainly didn't bother me with plans this time,' he said, smiling. "'This is a bully surprise.' "'I'm... "'I'm glad you like it,' said his wife shyly, still backing away. "'Of course he'd like it,' said Mrs. de Gunther's kind, staccato voice behind him. "'Kiss your husband and tell him he's welcome home, Phyllis child.' Now Phyllis was tired with much hurried work and overstrung, and Alan, lying there smiling boyishly up at her, allan seen for the first time in these usual-looking grey man-clothes was like neither the marble crusaders she had feared nor the heart-broken little boy she had pitied he was suddenly her contemporary a very handsome and attractive young fellow a little her senior from all appearances he might have been well and normal and come home to her only a little tired perhaps by the day's work or sport, as he lay smiling at her in that friendly, intimate way. It was terrifyingly different. Everything felt different. All her little pieces of feeling for him, pity and awe and friendliness and love of service, seemed to spring suddenly together and make something else, something unplaced and disturbing. Her cheeks burned with a childish embarrassment as she stood there before him in her ruffled pink gown. What should she do? It was just then that Mrs. de Gunther's crisply spoken advice came. Phyllis was one of those people whose first unconscious instinct was to obey an unspoken order. She bent blindly to Allan's lips and kissed him with a child's obedience, then straightened up aghast. He would think her very bold. But he did not, for some reason. It may have seemed only comforting and natural to him, that swift childish kiss, and Phyllis's honey colored, violet scented hair brushing his face. Men take a great deal without question as their rightful due. The others closed around him then, welcoming him, laughing at the surprise and the way he had taken it, telling him all about it as if everything were as usual and pleasant as possible, and the present state of things had always been a pleasant commonplace. And Wallace began to serve the picnic supper. End of chapter 10